Alex Mozad, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. A few great topics for today. Uh, we're going to hit, start off talking about Meta. We've talked in the past about M&A being a huge factor to large tech monopolies' ability to grow. So is, is Meta doing M&A? That's Facebook. And what does that mean for their Meta aspirations? Rocket Financial just acquired this company called Truebill for over a billion dollars. I love the deal. We're going to talk about that more. China Ventures on the decline. We're going to take a look at that, uh, which is great news. And, uh, and then some interesting repercussions of a platform monopoly in the ride-sharing business. And what has that done to the traditional uh, incumbent that is taxis? So there's a really interesting story there with some of that fallout. So let's jump on in. So in the past, I've talked about Meta, Facebook, uh, and the other large tech monopolies, Apple, Google, uh, Amazon, Microsoft, and Facebook, FAMGA, using M&A as a primary mechanism for growth to to really become kind of a platform conglomerate, right? You get very dominant platform business in one area. For Facebook, it was the Facebook social network. For Google, Google search. And then what do you do? You bolt on complementary platforms that now can share and kind of cross-pollinate those network effects. Google buying YouTube. You know, they were building Google Video, but it wasn't moving as fast. YouTube was kicking their butt. And so they bought YouTube, which has been a phenomenal um, acquisition for them. And they've done a bunch of other ones too. Or Facebook and buying Instagram or WhatsApp, right? These are amazing acquisitions, which have been wildly accretive, have really put the tech monopoly into that platform conglomerate positioning, uh, created tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of value. It's very hard for companies that are worth tens of billions or hundreds of billions of dollars to start new businesses from scratch. It takes a long time. It's just very difficult to do, particularly inside of any large multi-billion dollar company. It's just very difficult. So enter M&A. And I've talked, the good news in our fight against big tech monopolies is that because of all the scrutiny that large tech monopolies have been coming under, M&A has become much more difficult for them to, to use And even if they do use it, it's been much more difficult for those acquisitions to be approved. Look at Facebook Meta's acquisition of Giphy, small acquisition, $400 million, has come under a litany of scrutiny both in the US and the UK, um, and is still now, I think, what, uh, two years later, still uh, not completely done and approved globally. So that's good news. Because M&A has been a huge mechanism and very successful mechanism for the tech monopolies. This recent article here in uh, CB Insights talking about Meta's acquisitions and saying, hey, Meta's done five acquisitions in 2021 and 100% of them have been metaverse related. And so I've talked before on the show and on Bloomberg about how really what, what Zuckerberg would love to do is just go buy Roblox, right? A couple hundred billion dollars and call it a day. You win. You, you now get the metaverse, right? Roblox has a $60 billion market cap. They could buy this 
in two seconds, not even bad an eye. Microsoft bought Minecraft for $2.5 billion, you know, which seems in retrospect like a like a great um, decision for them. That was back in 2014 when Microsoft bought Minecraft. So now much more difficult to pull off these multi-billion, especially tens of billions or possibly, you know, probably tough to buy Roblox for under a hundred billion these days. But um, anyway, that would be the move. That would be the move. I mean, there's maybe one or two other smaller players from a Roblox that they could entertain acquiring, but you get my point, right? Instead, let's look at these deals. So what has Facebook been buying? The answer is smaller companies. I would call these companies more like point solutions. They're not the full platform business, right? Like this company, Imagine Optics, within which which is a VR AR play. Uh, Unitu Games, which has you know games for the eventual metaverse, right? Like these aren't massive deals. You know, Imagine Optics had raised twenty million bucks uh, before being acquired. Within had fifty million dollars of of funding before being acquired. Um, AI.reverie, a leading provider of synthetic data to train machine learning algorithms. It's related to, to metaverse type stuff. Had raised $6 million, right? These are smaller deals. Unit two games raised $5 million. So much smaller deals giving Facebook key competencies to deliver on the broader uh, metaverse platform vision. But still, no actual lightning rod, no existing platform business that they can just bring their billions of users onto, right? Like what they could do with a Roblox, for example. So these are much different. Facebook still basically needs to go and build this business from scratch, which is why Zuckerberg is personally involved in this, which is why Zuckerberg changed the name of the company. I still really don't like calling it Meta. It's just kind of an annoying name Um, from Facebook to Meta. Um, which is why he reorged and restructured the whole management team, the whole kind of organizational structure of the company. This is a huge shift and it's super difficult. And basically something that having a founder still at the head of the company um, that can roll up his sleeve, Zuckerberg, and really try and pull this thing off, you really do needs, you, you really do need that gargantuan of an effort. To, to put yourself in a position to win because he can't go just buy this, which is what he would love to do, but he can't, which is good news for bringing more equity, more competition, and not letting the next decade be dominated like the last decade from these big tech platform monopolies. So next topic is Rocket Mortgage, I guess they call themselves Rocket Companies, bought this company called Truebill for one point. 275, almost basically $1.3 billion cash. I love, I actually love this acquisition. It's such a great example of what I would call a traditional business being Rocket. Granted, a very digitally savvy, but still a traditional business. They are a lender, right? They they provide mortgages, um, car loans. They have really pioneered using digital instant approvals, using mobile, right? And really uh, streamlining that whole process to get a loan instantly, uh, 
and 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 doing that through a digital channel, right? So they've done a very good job at that. It's but it's a it's a linear business. It's a very digital savvy and and digitally perfected linear business, but a linear business none the same. Even though in this press release they like to call themselves a platform company. Rocket is not a platform company. They're lending from their own balance sheet and doing it just in a, in a very digitally savvy manner, which again, is a great business for them. They've done very well for themselves, but this true build deal is a very different business model. And I love it. So true bill, what this kind of reminds me of is you're providing more utility Right? You're moving upstream if you are Rocket. You're saying, I want to move upstream into that consumer journey. How can I provide more value rather than when the consumer is just at the point ready to get the, the loan, the mortgage, the auto loan, et cetera? I want to move upstream to develop that relationship and have a much more holistic relationship with the consumer, with the borrower. And who's done a really good job at this over the years is actually into it. Into it, also, you know, not really a platform company. They have platform dynamics and smaller platform businesses, uh, but really they're a SaaS business. QuickBooks is a SaaS tool. TurboTax is basically a SaaS tool. QuickBooks does have like a services marketplace where you can go and hire um, accounting help, uh, controllers, accountants, right? And you pay them hourly fees or whatever to to help you with your book. So that's kind of a services marketplace. There's also now kind of like a development platform play where third-party apps can, you know, build tools, kind of like what Salesforce is doing, um, where you can have a developer portal and, and people can build apps on top of QuickBooks. But for Salesforce, that business is a much larger part of their overall revenue makeup, the developer portal, the developer platform than it is for Intuit. But still, nonetheless, um, what they've done to complete my analogy to what Rocket is doing is they bought Mint.com back maybe 12 years ago, 2009, which you know helped aggregate. You can use Mint and say, hey, I'm going to go put all my accounts. I'm going to open my, my bank accounts in here, my credit cards, right? And Mint is going to help me analyze all my spending and my bills and, you know, my, uh, my net worth and, right, and my kind of um, financial profile and help me make sense of that and manage it, give me insights as a consumer. Makes a lot of sense, right? Kind of, that one kind of taking what they were doing more so on the business side with QuickBooks and TurboTax for, um, well, QuickBooks certainly for small businesses and then you know, now kind of moving into the consumer arena. Intuit, interestingly, just in the past couple of years has been on a M&A spree buying up Credit Karma for a few billion dollars, MailChimp for $12 billion, which MailChimp had not raised really any private money. So those founders did pretty well. These acquisitions for Intuit, I would say still more so in keeping with their same business model, but you can see how they were broadening the portfolio of offering that they were providing to small businesses, to consumers. The interesting thing with the uh, Rocket acquisition here is this Truebill company has a very different business model 
than Rocket's core business. The Truebill company is providing value much more similarly to the kinds of companies that QuickBooks was buying, has been buying, um, which are more of these SaaS kind of tools for consumers or small businesses. What Truebill does, if you go to their website, actually, I, I think I'm going to go use this thing. It's great. Truebill empowers you to save more, spend less, see everything, and take back control of your financial life. Basically, get control over your subscriptions. Never pay for an unwanted subscription again. Truebill instantly finds and tracks your subscriptions. Your concierge is there when you need need them to cancel services so you don't have to. Stay on top of your spending so they're giving you that analysis like a mint.com is giving you. Get the best rates on your existing bills. Our concierge will identify bills that can be lowered and negotiate on your behalf for the best rates available. That kind of stuff, right? Very cool. It reminds me of a, of a startup a friend of mine started many years ago, which ultimately went under. But what that startup would do is they would just hook up to your email and they would track, for example, your airline uh, flights. And so they would track your, you know, okay, hey, you booked a flight. Boom, I can see the flight that you're taking. And then they track if that flight is delayed. And if that flight is delayed, then they go ping your airline to try and get you some credits or miles or something like that automatically. And their business model was that you could just pay them like 30% of whatever they saved you. You know, if they got you a hundred bucks worth of miles, you pay them 30 bucks, right? Really cool business model. Unfortunate that they didn't make it. Um, I loved the, the value in it and kind of just set it and forget it. I haven't used true, true bill, but it would be, you know, my hope is that this managing of subscriptions, uh, this autopilot savings, this bill negotiation is kind of doing something similar uh, where you can just, you know, they can say, hey, like, look at this subscription you've had. Or um, we see that, you know, these people over here have the same subscription, but but you're paying a higher rate than they are. And you can kind of centralize all that information and and help be the advocate of the consumer. Very different business model for Rocket, right? But what Rocket's saying is, hey, I need to move upstream and I want to be able to extend my my lifetime relationship with my consumers um, and future borrowers or existing borrowers. And so how can I provide value upstream and Truebill is their answer. And I, I really like the positioning of Truebill. You know, the synergy there is to say, hey, well, Truebill, you've got over 2 million users today. Hmm. I can have now a tighter integration so that when those consumers want a mortgage, an auto loan, et cetera, boom, Rocket is their go-to provider. That's going to provide synergy out of the gate. And for Truebill... Because they are going to be able to help Rocket monetize, you know, they basically, what Truebill has now done is basically unlocked a whole other revenue stream called lending. The way Truebill makes money is, you know, there's a free version, there's a primo version that you can pay like a SaaS fee for. And then if they save you money, they take looks like 30% of the annual savings. Uh, So if they renegotiate like this guy, um, they renegotiated, I think, his cable bill and internet bill. And then they get a cut of those savings. 
So it's a very cool model, like my friend's company or you know prior company um, with the airlines and and kind of getting credits out of the airlines. Now Truebill will have basically be able to justify having a higher CAC cost of customer acquisition because not only are they going to make money from a premium subscription from taking 30% of the savings that they bring you, but now, you know, they're going to be making money when their users get a loan through Rocket. And what that means is now Truebill can be more aggressive in acquiring customers because now they have a more comprehensive model for monetization. And that ultimately is going to help both entities, right? It's going to help Rocket issue more loans, uh, have a more captive audience of, of consumers, extend the relationship from their existing borrowers and give more value that Truebill can provide. And then similarly, it's going to help Truebill expand more aggressively, um, justify spending more money to acquire customers if they want to do that. And, you know, you just have a more comprehensive and holistic way to monetize and both create value and extract value out of your users, which, you know, they, they go, those things go hand in hand. So I love this play. It's a great example of a digital linear lender rocket embracing a, a, a completely digital, very kind of SaaS esque business model and putting the two things together. Love this. Love this play. Love this thinking. Love their ability to, you know, to spend a good chunk of money over a billion dollars on something like this. A um, lot of work to get the integration correct. A lot of work. Because this company operates very differently than Rocket. Even though Rocket is very digitally savvy, they're still a lender. This company is not a lender. This is a kind of digital through and through business. At the end of the day, Rocket's a lender. This is not a company. And this is not a lender, Truebill. So it's very different um, cultures. There are very different ways to think about creating value and monetizing value. But you can overcome that if managed properly. And I think if managed properly, strategically, and the synergies here are phenomenal. And I love this positioning. Who should look at doing this kind of stuff that isn't? Are your, <clears throat> your large banks, right? Uh, Rocket's not a bank. Uh, they are, again, a, a digitally savvy lender. They're not a bank. But these banks that already provide a lot of consumer services beyond just lending, right? Uh, if you're a bank, right? You, yes, you do mortgages, you do auto loans, you do credit cards, right? You, you already do a lot of lending. But you also do a lot of other things with your customers give them ATMs, you give them checks, you give them bill pay capabilities, right? Like just managing and using that money to, to do a whole bunch of things that they're keeping your, they're keeping their money in your bank. Why wouldn't you want to then provide these kinds of, uh, spending analysis tools, um, <clears throat> the ability to better manage all your subscriptions, right? Like all the, um, all the data that the bank already has, they can already see a lot of this stuff, but they only get to see what is in their bank account, right? Many people have multiple bank accounts. So how can you now see, hey, look at, if I'm Chase, look at, look at uh, Alex's bank account with Bank of America. 
Hmm. I'd be really good to try and steal Bank of America's business. I'm going to give Alex some really good analysis tools to justify that. And I'm going to give Alex, you know, this uh, subscription management offering and all these other things, right? Um, what are the banks doing besides really Goldman Sachs, who is just spending a bunch of money um, uh, buying things like Green Sky, which, you know, the two differences in the Green Sky acquisition and, and this deal, this true build deal is this. Yes. Okay. It's different business models. It's completely different industries. It's, it's so, but not, not looking at, at the strategy, both deals have synergy with the core business, uh, green sky and Goldman's core business, true bill and rocket's core business. Okay. Here is the big difference between those two deals. Green sky did not have growth. Truebill is exploding. That's a big difference. It's much easier to buy a tech company that has strong growth already, right? That have, has the growth up and to the right on the chart, right? They're in the upper right corner. That's where you want to be. See that hockey stick curve? That's what you want to see in every business. You want to see that growth up and to the right. Now, you're going to pay a much higher premium. You're going to pay, pay a much higher multiple on that business because they've got the growth figured out. But it's a very different, right? The, the, hardest, the hardest part of doing this kind of digital tech M&A is not doing the deal. It's doing the integration and making all those synergies come to life. What Goldman needs to do on a green sky is they have to re, reignite that growth engine in green sky. And you can believe me and management, right? The management of green sky are very smart, savvy people. You don't think that they haven't tried, you know, a hundred different things to fix their growth engine prior to Goldman coming in. So what is Goldman magically going to figure out and do to make that business go aggressively up and to the right? It's a much more difficult challenge, but that's also why it was only a couple billion dollar acquisition. Um, and you look at the multiples on the business and and they're going to be lower because that's a challenge. And, you know, hopefully Green Sky and Goldman can fix that. But that is a very difficult thing to do. I mean, doing any kind of successful M&A integration between a kind of a traditional business and a pure tech company is very difficult. So Goldman's deal with Green Sky is much more difficult to pull that off and reignite that growth engine. This deal, Truebill, yes, you're paying a nice, a very nice multiple on the business, but they've got the growth. And now you're just going to make that growth even more frothy. You're going to extract more value out of the business. You're going to bring value to Truebill. Truebill is going to bring value to Rocket. It's much more self-contained, the stuff that you need to solve for, which Ultimately, it's a business decision, how, how complex, how much stuff you want to figure out. But that's why I love this deal. And I am more skeptical of the green sky deal. It's just a very difficult thing to pull off versus this, the true bill and rocket deal, which I, I if all things considered equal, which are completely different businesses, completely different industries, completely different strategies. I would pick this deal over the Goldman Green Sky deal. Other great news is that China Venture Investing 
is down. China and venture investing, specifically from U.S. firms investing in China. Phenomenal news. Why is that phenomenal news? Because you can't trust the CCP. And we should not be doing business with communists. Very plain and simple. What would seemingly be a controversial statement in 2021 would not have been a controversial statement 20 or 30 years ago. You can't trust the communists. We thought we were going to change the communists. We were wrong. They have become ultra-aggressive and shown their true colors, whether it's COVID, whether it's their crackdown on any kind of civil liberties for their people, whether it's abusing the power of big tech in China to further enforce the will of the government and take away the liberties of the people. It's just really unfortunate to see the direction that China and the Communist Party have taken things. Which is why we can't support it. We can't get involved. And as an investor, you can't trust putting money to work in the, com- in the country. You just can't do it. And that has been evidenced by the uh, phenomenal fall from grace all of Chinese big tech companies have, have endured now for the past year plus or so. Um, and that's just going to continue. President Xi has an ego unlike, I don't know, I mean, probably, probably, Probably the biggest ego on the planet. I don't know. Him and Putin, probably right up there together. So we've got here an article, China's venture investors see a 65% drop in fundraising. What that means is these are uh, dollars raised by VCs that invest in Chinese tech startups, right? Lovely. VC firms that invest US dollars in Chinese tech startups have raised far less money this year than in the past. Such firms have raised $4.2 billion this year so far. Again, this is, you know, at the end of 2021, December 20th, down 65% from all of last year. China-based VC firms that invest in startups using yuan, right? So they're, they're, these are kind of, these are raising money from Chinese investors, um, experienced an even steeper drop. Just 14 funds raised the equivalent of $1.7 billion US dollars in yuan, down 79% from last year. So the VC industry in China is taking a huge blow, which, um, yeah, from a U.S. standpoint is great news. I'll give one more example of this and then I'll expand on why it's such great news. But look at this, another article here, why Sequoia Capital could split from basically Sequoia Capital China. Um, Rising geopolitical tensions could spell the end of a 16-year relationship for Sequoia Capital and Sequoia Capital China. I mean, 16-year relationship, this is their Chinese entity, but they're not probably allowed to like kind of own it. But it's, it's Sequoia Capital China. Sequoia is going to potentially split from Sequoia Capital China. That's not like some partnership. This is their subsidiary in China. Whether they fully control the subsidiary or not is separate. They are going to potentially just sever ties with their Chinese entity. This is a big deal. We predict the U.S. venture powerhouse and its Chinese affiliate will move to part ways next year as the Chinese government extends a regular regulatory crackdown on tech companies and U.S. investment firms grow more reluctant to pour money into China. Wow. Right. So the great decoupling is happening. Uh, That's the decoupling between U.S. and China, the West and communists. And it's picking up speed. Thanks to President Xi, frankly, this guy's helping out. All of this. Um, 
His crackdown and his party's crackdown on Chinese big tech, the way they've completely and appropriately handled uh, COVID, <clears throat> have abused their power as the second largest economy in the world, have abused their big tech capabilities to crack down on their people and prevent the spread of information about the virus. This is just one example uh, of, of their abuse of big tech monopolies to control their people, to control how the world thinks about China, to control how about the world thinks about topics that China cares about. Uh, we're in an information warfare today with China. <clears throat> and their crackdown on big tech, which goes to show you, right? Like they understand, they're very smart. They understand the power that China gets from their big tech monopolies. They understand this very, very well. Better than the US understands it, I would argue. Not only do the Chinese big tech monopolies give the CCP power in China, but it gives them power globally in emerging markets like India, which we've talked so much about. In the United States, like with TikTok and Zoom, Tencent, an investor in Reddit, about to go public. So they understand this all too well, frankly, too well for my liking. But despite all of that, they are weakening their Chinese tech monopolies. And when you weaken the Chinese tech monopolies, it has repercussions like this, right? Because now if you... If the prospect of going public and having an exit is hampered and that predictability goes away, which it has now, thanks to the CCP's crackdown on big on Chinese tech monopolies, that is then going to thwart investor appetite to take the risk to invest in the startups, which means less unicorns on the horizon, you know, over the next three to five years, which means that not only are the Chinese tech monopolies of today <clears throat> in a retrenching mode. Many of them are having to cut back on their international investments and kind of just refocus on the domestic business. And China is such a huge market. I mean, you need the engine, the China market to spin off the profits and the dollars to go invest in emerging and international markets, right? So the CCP has completely shaken all of that up, distracted Chinese tech monopolies from being able to focus as aggressively, both just from a time, attention, and capital standpoint to invest abroad, which has been a boon for, guess who? U.S. tech monopolies. It's good. Good for us. But now, as you see the VC community in China also take a hit, also have less dollars to invest in earlier stage Chinese tech companies, that is going to have repercussions on the ability to have more unicorns down the road, right? What is the next billion dollar tech opportunity? When you think about how that battle spills out into emerging markets, which is really where the, the big battle is between US and Chinese tech monopolies is not so much in China and the US, it is a little bit there, okay? But the real big battles are in emerging markets, Southeast Asia, India, um, South America, Africa, Europe. The unicorns, the next unicorns, right, in the next two, three, four, five years, they're the ones that are on, the, on kind of that hot opportunity. What's the next wave? What's the next trend? And 
you need those unicorns to pioneer the trend domestically and then bring that to the other adjacent markets and, and emerging markets. Case in point, look at Uber. Look at Uber, right? They were on top of ride sharing in the US. Clearly, first mover advantage for ride sharing in the US. And then they doubled and tripled down. They're raising dollars on a very high valuation commanded in the US market. And then they were taking those dollars and investing them internationally. Where you look at all the international markets that Uber operates in, they bought some startups that had started in key markets. And they bought them cheap because they understood the economics and they had the valuation to support and they had the dollars to put in. I mean, they made so much money. Even Uber's Uber China, which then got consumed into Didi, uh, they made billions of dollars on their investment in Uber China. There are things that we should be thanking President Xi for and his ego. Their crackdown on big tech is a boon for U.S. tech monopolies today and over the coming years like we are seeing with Chinese venture investing taking a huge blow. The CCP's aggressiveness, A, their irresponsible actions, and their aggressiveness um, to just become more totalitarian, more authoritarian um, in China and to exert their will abroad, like the stuff they're doing with Australia, ridiculous has shown their true colors and is all a part of the great decoupling. It's all a part of the great awakening where people are seeing communism trying to rise up and people are not happy about it. So thank you, President Xi, for showing us your true colors. Thank you, President Xi, for making these decisions much easier for a lot of us that have known this for a long time, but for a lot of us that you know just weren't paying attention to it, it's not part of their daily life or activities, but they can understand it very clearly. And they are, and more and more of them are joining that fight every day. So, wonderful news. Speaking of Uber, <clears throat> last topic today is the other side of what happens when you have a unicorn then become a platform monopoly. And what happens to the incumbent? I mean, it's in the name, gang. Medallion Financial Corp. Can you guess? What kind of fallout they would have from Uber's rise? Hmm. Maybe the fact that this business, up until just the past few years, prided itself on what part of its lending portfolio? Oh, yes, that's right. Taxi medallions. If you don't know what a medallion is, in order to drive a taxi in New York and other cities, you know, they have these uh, local commissions, like in New York, it's the TLC, like the Taxi and Limousine Commission. And they certify your taxi, your, you as a driver, your ability to, um, you know, be a commercial driver for safety, your knowledge of the streets and all this stuff. Historically, pre-Google Maps, there was all the, the hype around how a taxi driver's my, memory was so good. They had like enlarged, uh, what is it, medulla oblongatas or something like that, right? Remember these stories like decades ago? Because the taxi drivers had to remember all the streets. Can't look at a map. They need to know. So the TLC was that local commission which would say, you can drive a taxi. And they would only give out a certain number of permits. So these permits, which are basically medallions, had a value. 
and and the TLC would sell these medallions, still does. They would sell the, the permit essentially to operate a taxi in New York City or, or that respective city. A medallion loan is to say, well, if the medallion back in 2004 was $300,000, me, the taxi driver, I can't buy that thing for $300,000 cash. I can maybe put, you know, thirty dollars or $50,000. Then I need to go finance that uh, 300, the rest of that 300,000, that 250 from a bank, like a mortgage. So you have these medallion loans, which are basically financing the, the purchase of a permit to drive a taxi. This company is like basically was, maybe still is today, but certainly was kind of at the peak of taxis. One of, if not the largest lender for taxi medallions, right? These taxi medallions cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, not even just a few years ago. And at one point, we're, we're going for over a million dollars. And so that money has to come from somewhere. You know, these taxi drivers can't, you know, just have a million dollars cash. It comes from a bank like this company, Medallion Financial Corporation. So let's take a look at what's going on with this company. Uh, recent news here, SEC charges the Medallion Financial Corporation and its president with engaging in fraudulent schemes to boost their stock price. They were at about $8.45 a share. And then this news came out. They went down to $3.50 a share. And now it's kind of backed up. It's leveled off at around, you know, six six twenty a share. So still a major blow even from eight forty five. But then, wow, um, huge fall off to 350. <clears throat> now, kind of somewhere in between it at around six. So, what's going on here? Interesting thing is, you know, the SEC is coming after them for a few things. Um, one is they're saying that this company engaged in illegal touting by paying this company and others to place positive stories about the company on various websites including the Huffington Post, Seeking Alpha, and TheStreet.com, created fake identities so their opinion pieces would appear credible to potential investors, right? So this guy was like ghost, ghost writing the articles about why their company is undervalued and then putting it out under like fake pseudonyms, having this firm Cranium, which is a uh, media company, go out to these financial websites publish these opinion articles from, you know, independent third-party uh, writers and, uh, and are actually, I guess, you know, either being directly written or certainly influenced by the bank's management. Really difficult stuff to do when you are a public company. Then they're also saying that the complaint further alleges that Medallion, uh, the company, fraudulently increased the carrying value of their subsidiary to offset losses relating to the taxicab medallion loan. So we're going to go take a look. This company has had to write off hundreds of millions of dollars in medallion loans because guess what? You can't pay the loan because if you're a taxi driver, let's say you bought a medallion for a million dollars. Let's say you put $100,000 down and, and medallion, this company, this bank, lends you $900,000. You, as the taxi uh, driver and owner of that medallion, now need to make monthly payments on that loan. It's like a mortgage to the bank. And now what's happened is 
these taxi drivers can't make these loan payments anymore. And so you need and and you can't resell that medallion, right? The value of the medallion has gone down. Markets completely changed thanks to platforms like Uber and Lyft. The value of those medallions has gone down, which means this bank needs to write down the value of these loans. And they need to then also report all these delinquent loans that people can't pay their payments on time. And so as a bank, you're heavily regulated. As a public company, you're also heavily regulated. There's a lot of rules about what you need to do from a reporting standpoint to be transparent for your investors. The last part of this complaint is that violating the anti-fraud books and records, internal controls. Another way to describe it is you're cooking the books. You are not transparent. You should have reported these things differently in your books. Should have been more transparent with investors. You were not. You didn't follow the rules. So now you're in trouble. At the peak, medallions were going for over a million bucks. Okay. Now they are down to less than $100,000. And that is happens when you have platform disruption, gang. Now, how well did Medallion recognize this shift in the market over the course of the past 17 years, from 300,000 in, in 2004 to over a million in, uh, you know, what do you call it, the 2010s, to now sub 100,000 come 2021? Well, let's take a look. This is their 2020 annual report. 2021 report will be coming out uh, in, the, in the near future, but I got the 2020 annual report. What the business has been doing over the past few years, they've been trying to get into other areas of lending, home improvement lending, commercial lending, uh, basically like lending for RVs and boats. And so they've been trying to diversify away from taxi medallion lending, smart. So how have they dotted that? And how, how well did they minimize their exposure to medallion lending? This is from 2020 annual report. So you can see here, they have a $40 million provision for loan losses in 2020, $16 million provision in 2019. Interesting. They're saying in 2020, they only had $37 million in loans for medallions, 130 in 2019. And that's a pretty big difference. Charge off percent of 59%. And only 14.68% in 2019. Hmm. And 7% in 2018. Kind of sped up there in 2020. Which they have now said was really exacerbated by COVID. So it's COVID, not like Uber, which has been around for 12 years. Certainly was very dominant, you know, prior to 2018. You didn't have anywhere near, you know, 20% charge-offs. No, no, no. It was 50, it just spiked to 59% in 2020. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Yeah, sure. So um, let's look at some of their older annual reports. 2015 annual report. While our taxi medallion lending business con confronted industry challenges in 2015, the taxi industry has showed great resilience and adaptation with the promise of continued progress in 2016. We continue to experience virtually zero realized losses as we cull weaker borrowers from the portfolio 
and concentrate more on profitability and safety rather than growth. As a result, our taxi business maintained stable volume and improved yields over the prior years. Despite a small drop in fare box revenue, taxi medallion owners generally showed no drop in their income and instead were busy with street hails and a growing volume of e-hails through taxi ride-sharing apps. We all know those sucked. Drivers who left for ride-sharing companies are returning more and more to medallion taxis. They've become disillusioned with compensation and other expectations. A little bit of bias? Furthermore, court cases regarding driver employment status, insurance regulations, and unfair competition are often being settled in favor of the taxi industry. In 2016, we believe our taxi medallion lending is well-positioned to experience increased rates and earnings. Talk about being disillusioned and not being able to see the forest from the trees. Wow. This is 2015. Q4 2015. Cumulative money raised for Uber. Cumulative. $7.3 billion. Okay. They just wrote an annual report. At the same point in time, Uber has raised over $7 billion. Lyft, at this point, has also raised billions. (laughs) And they're saying, oh, yeah, we're good. We're we're good. I was pressing the panic button in the taxi industry long before 2015. These medallions, I knew, were in trouble. And, I mean, it was obvious, like, obvious. I I didn't need Uber to raise $7 billion. I'd say, frankly... Back in like probably 2013, 2014, I was sounding the alarm bells to say, whoa, right? Look at this. 2013, Uber raised $400 million cumulatively. 2014, by the end of 2014, Uber had raised $3.6 billion, right? So in that, in that year, they raised over $3 billion. You got to remember, it's just in the past few years, you've seen these mega, mega, like multi-billion dollar funding rounds. That was not a thing pre-2015, right? I mean, it was not normal to raise even a billion dollars uh, back then, let alone over $3 billion in a year. That was unheard of. This company was blowing up. It wasn't just... Like 2016, 2017, 2018. No. It was smart for Medallion to start to, at this point, 2015, they were diversifying into other businesses. But they should have been trying to shed these loans a long, long time ago. 2015, 3% of the Medallion loans, about 12 million bucks worth of loans, was 90 days or more past due. Not ideal, but also not outrageous. Boom. 2016. 2015, they said, oh yeah, 2016 looks positive. We can increase rates, they said. 2016, though, they end the year with about 19% of their medallion portfolio, 90 days or more past due. That did not change in 2017, end of the year, also around 19%. So they're decreasing the size of their loan book in medallion loans. But the problem is persisting. You know, it's clear they missed the boat on this. They should have pressed the panic button years before. They should have taken much more aggressive action to reduce their exposure to medallion loans. They 
did not understand the threat of a platform monopoly. And they got killed for it. They um, tried to bury it. They tried to take, do what the SEC believes is, uh, you know, they broke the law, according to the SEC. We're not transparent with investors. We're trying to prop up the valuation of their company in a variety of ways. We're not reporting things properly. They were in hot water. Back in 2017, their stock hit about $2.50. Now they're at, you know, about six bucks. Right when this news hit a few days ago, they went down to about three fifty. They never really fully got were able to exit this business, which I which I think they could have had they acted much more diligently, if they had recognized the threat much more proactively. Instead they took other measures to try to artificially inflate the valuation of their company. And according to the SEC, broke the law. Big trouble from Medallion Financial Corporation. Something they should have been able to see a mile away. Especially when in 2015, Uber had raised over $7 billion. But they're still ending their annual report on a positive note. And I'm pretty sure they were still issuing new loans in 2017 and maybe thereafter. I have to go double check that so I could be wrong. But I'm pretty sure they were also doing that too not just trying to reduce the exposure of their existing loan book, which they should have been more transparent on. And they should have recognized much earlier on that was going to be in trouble. That is a a classic example of platform disruption. You know, you have a business that in 2004, just 10 years prior, you're the darling getting New York Times write-ups. Like, he's just... Stories in New York Times fawning over you and how brilliant you are. Ten years later, they should have been pressing that panic button. 2014, they should have been saying, we got to get the hell out of here. This thing's going to explode and we don't want to be holding the hot potato. That's how fast this stuff moves. It doesn't, you would never think that it could, it could deteriorate that fast, but it does. So that's how fast these platforms grow and scale and dominate, just crush Medan Financial Corp. learned it the hard way. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you very much for joining us. I'll talk to you soon.